and welcome back to another episode of the Security Hall Podcast. As always, I am your host, Denny Caballero, and with me is my co-host, Eric. And we are bringing you quite possibly one of the best doctors we could have ever hoped to have on this podcast. Sorry, Dr. Murphy, you're going to have to take a step back today, because today we have Chris Free. Uh if you are a soft member or somebody that's been dealing with many of the issues we're about to talk today, you know who he is and you probably read his uh, work on operator syndrome. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing well, man. How are you? Doing well. Uh, just absolutely thrilled to have you on today. And we're going to just, we're going to put you through the ringer, man, because we got a lot of information and a lot of people <laughs> need to hear the All words right. from your mouth. By man. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, I just want to start off by asking uh, how you've been. What are you up to these days? Oh, well, thanks. I'm doing well. I'm, what am I up to these days? Oh, goodness. I'm summer, summer vacation for me. I'm a college professor at the University of Hawaii. Um, and I, I kind of use the word vacation loosely because I'm, I'm working, uh, just working this summer on my, on my stuff with the community and, um, yeah, trying to trying to get some stuff written and book written, maybe. Nice. Hmm. That's what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> How to write a book? We need more books. We need more books. <laughs> we do. We need the world is short on has a short supply of books. So, yeah, especially when it comes to dealing uh, with health and what we can do to get better, and what could we start. Uh, like when we start taking those baby steps into, oh, wow, I'm messed up. I need to go get help. We don't really know what to really address first. And uh, I think it's a perfect uh, segue into talking about your great work. How did you get involved with the soft community uh, in writing this paper? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's been a bit of a journey. Um, I mean, you want to hear the quick 30,000 foot, overview of, of, of oh that. yeah so yeah so um i i i have a phd in clinical psychology awarded in 1992 i spent 15 years first 15 years of my career working at the va medical center in charleston south carolina and i was faculty at the medical university of south carolina and that was great great experience great um you know i loved it there i loved working with the veterans uh, I didn't love the VA as a system, however. Um, I think the system yeah. is, is um, you know, it, it was problem. It was a it was a huge problem then, and I don't think it's gotten any better. I left VA in 2006, came to the University of Hawaii. I've been here ever since. But I also took, took a, a detour through Houston for about 12, 13 years where I was um, had part-time jobs there where I was commuting from Hawaii to Houston for work first at Baylor College of Medicine and then the University of Texas Medical School. And you know, I don't know, it was this was not a planned planned thing. I've been working with veterans and service members my my for my entire career, but I wanted to I, I just got involved with some friends um in Houston. So I guess I should start with that start there. And probably, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years ago, a friend of mine who had just gotten out of the SEAL teams, um, and he'd been at he'd been at DevGuru, and he he was kind of struggling. And somebody asked me if I could help him. So just informal conversations. I thought, 
oh, this guy's going to need a PTSD expert. You know, I'm beating my chest and thinking I'm, I'm the man. And we start talking and he didn't have PTSD. Not even close. Uh, but he did have some other problems going on and, and things I wasn't expecting or prepared for, like sleep apnea and low testosterone. And, and that, that just puzzled me. And the only reason we even got there was just through kind of a trial and error process of just kind of check, working down a checklist, trying to, well, let's try this. Let's look at this. Let's try Let's see what's happening on this system of your body. And gradually we, we found answers and solutions and he started getting doing much better in life. And then he, had, he sent a few of his friends my way uh, and, you know, rinse and repeat. And they sent their friends my way and then they sent some of their friends my way. So just through that kind of snowball um, approach, word of mouth referrals, I've, you know, and I've now worked with many, many um, individuals and couples from the soft community. Just informally, uh, not nothing through any kind of system or anything like that. Um, and I would say my role really has been that of kind of a coach, mentor. Um, yeah, not really therapist, but coach, mentor. <laughs> Let's call it that. Yeah. Yeah. So just, th- th- I mean, that's kind of the story. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's what I find that just is absolutely amazing when, uh, I, you tend to always look for these hard-nosed research. These groups were put together by a bunch of doctors and scholars, but really and truly, it was somebody needed help. You were there for them, and then they keep bringing their friends, and they keep reaching out to you. And I'm finding that's a common thread with a lot of groups, whether it's a peer-to-peer support structure like Reboot Recovery or doctors such as yourself, that somebody trusted you, somebody reached mm-hmm. out to you and you were able to start helping them, pointing them down the right, the right path, the right Avenue. Um, but it still blows me away that guys in my community, in our community, like that we work with, that we were brothers that we've gone to, to battle with, they still don't understand or know about operator syndrome. Well, they just think it's a, one issue. Oh, it's just, you know, I just, my sleep sucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll tell you something. Everybody's sleep does suck. Um, and you know, <laughs> when when I when I first, probably about six seven years ago, I as I was starting to learn, and you know, we're this is just pattern recognition, trial and error. I'm not doing anything brilliant. I'm just being persistent, and started to see some some patterns over time, over and over again. So. What I did was I drew up a, a document that I call, what did I call it? The, I think I called it the sleep manual, the sleep field manual for operators or something like that. And, yeah. and it became kind of a living document that I just added to it every time I thought of something or learned something. And I used it just to share with the guys I talked to. Like, hey, here's, a, here's some stuff that's all about helping you sleep better. Um, but it includes brain health. Uh, endocrine health, sleep health, you know, is, you know, sleep apnea and the importance of getting a sleep study, it was everything. And, and that, that document is what became, that was the first draft, let's call it the first rough draft of the operator syndrome paper that we eventually published. Just started as a, as a little, you know, one page or thing I threw together uh, just to, to help 
help my guys. And it, it, it grew and it developed into something. And people were telling me, man, this ought to be out there. So we, a group of us, and, and by the way, <laughs> I got it. I got to give a shout out to many, many great colleagues in the field who are oh, yeah. who are doing similar. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't just me. Um, and I've co-authored. Yeah, it's not a one man. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of one man shops and there's some other shops that have three or four people, but you know, we're now starting to come together. I think we're connecting the dots and sharing, sharing lessons learned and that sort of thing. And now I guess, you know, kind of as my connection with the, the community has matured and as I think, you know, there's a growing awareness of the, the problems that we're, that, that I've been calling I and others call operator syndrome. There's now a lot of foundations out here in the space that are starting to go, whoa, we need to do something for our people. Um, and so, yeah. so you're seeing more out there. But, you know, go back to the question of why are people not sure or clear of what's going on with them? And you said most talk about it as though it's one issue, sleep. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's something that anybody who's not sleeping well or not getting enough sleep um, can appreciate is something that they want to change. Uh, so there's no stigma in trying to help somebody sleep better. Um, yeah. Many of the people I talked to, I think if I'd approached them said, Oh, I'm a psychologist and you've got psychological problems and I'm here to help. I would have been the end of the conversation. Uh, exactly. Times. And, and understandably so uh, understandably. So I, I think so Let's go back to the VA for just a minute, if I could. Oh, of course. The VA has kind of two, two, I mean, their big button, their easy button is PTSD. You're a veteran. Yes. You served overseas. Yep, we see that all yeah. the time. You're a veteran, you served overseas. Oh, that's PTSD. Boom. Okay, problem. We've now diagnosed your problem, and here's a bunch of medications, and here's here's some therapy, and that's kind of... That's kind of what they're doing for most of the guys, and and the soft community doesn't. They're, they're walking out. They're 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 telling the VA to you know go pound sand, and they're leaving, and they're looking for other yep. solutions, and and good on them because the 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 PTSD easy button uh, really isn't appropriate for what we're talking about here uh, in this constellation. Yeah, and we see that constantly right now as guys are transitioning from their careers going through retirement and they, everybody has to go through the QTC uh, VA claims appointment process. And right now every single green beret will go in and they will give detail, accurate de depictions and talk eloquently about TBI versus PTSD. <laughs> and as soon as they get that rating back, it's, 70 80 percent ptsd zero tbi yep. yep i hear that all the time i hear that that's exactly what happened to me yeah oh. yeah eric just retired yeah. and we're talking about eric your career man like tell us yeah like, um started as a mortarman in the marine corps didn't really stop firing mortars my entire career tens of thousands of mortar mm -hmm. rounds and um what six deployments IEDs and then interior exterior breaches you get uh, do all that extensive testing through uh, Bayer Institute here in Fort Walton Beach and then do my VA testing and I'm at zero percent for TBI yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then it kind of sends like self doubt yeah. through my mind yeah. like okay do I, I 
am I? Did I? Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I guess all this is normal. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, that's an incredible disservice to you. It's an incredible disservice and it's a disgrace that the VA functions that way. But I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it down in part to ignorance and in part to arrogance of, of, right. of thinking that they have all the answers. That's kind of what the VA system is. Yeah. Um, I had a, yeah, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about here with regard to the VA, but um, I think there, I think without without saying too much about the the politics and the and the silliness of the of the of the institution uh, and the corruptness mm-hmm. of the institution, what what I would say is, in fairness to to the many, there are many good clinicians working in the VA system nationwide, and in fairness to those people, to those folks, to the good ones. There is not enough understood and known about blast wave exposures. So what what we know now, and it's not we don't know enough uh, yet scientifically, but we know a lot more than we did seven or eight, nine, ten years ago. What what we know now is that there are two types of brain injuries. One are the impact forces, you know, a blow to the head, falling off, falling off a, a ladder and hitting your head, you know, boxing, football, that kind of stuff. Those cause concussions, and they can cause long-term what's been labeled as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Yeah, CTE. CTE. And and by the way, there was just a study uh, that just came out that found pretty low rates of CTE in in military service members with TBI. Of course, the problem with studies like that is it depends upon a brain bank because they're post-mortem studies. Exactly. We now know um, researchers at Walter Reed, the same ones that just that did this recent study on CTE, finding low rates, that there's a different type of brain injury from blast wave exposures. So all so those ten thousand mortar rounds uh, that you were firing off, Erica, every time you you know every time you uh, you launched one, there's a there's a there's a explosion that happens right there and you're you're affected by it. and that's you know at the at the maybe let's say this the lower end of those is pulling a trigger right and the upper end is being too close to a to a to a, a blast or you know a breach a breaching situation but those blast waves have an invisible wave of overpressure that they send out and that has a shearing effect on every on the soft tissue in the body it goes through the body goes through through the brain it's not bruising the brain like a impact force does. It's going through the brain, and the the damage. Uh, this comes out of Daniel Pearl's shop. Uh, he's a pathologist at Walter Reed, um, really a phenomenal scientist, and, and I think you know real compassion for the community. Um, they've they've named it interface astroglial scarring. So it's kind of the blast wave. It's what blast waves cause in the long term. And like CTE, it can only be truly diagnosed at post-mortem right now. Um, oh, wow. It's, it's essentially a scarring in the glial cells uh, of the central nervous system, which the glial cells are not the neurons. They are what holds the neurons in place, and they support the neurons. And we have about 10 glial cells for every neuron. So about 100 billion Cells. That's a lot. <laughs> and they get fucked up by blast waves. There's there's the scientific exclamation point. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. 
do not panic. And, do not panic. <laughs> and so what does the VA do? They ask, like, oh, you think you have a TBI, sir? Okay. How long were you unconscious? Well, right. first of all, blast waves don't usually cause, lead to loss of consciousness. And that is a big marker. Loss of consciousness is a big marker for TBI, but it's not the only marker. And so you, we just, I'm just seeing this left and right. So many people with TBI are just getting dismissed by the VA because I think clinicians just, they're not up on the latest research and they don't have a, a current understanding of what, uh, to quote the title of a, of a, of a, of something that was published in 2020, modern warfare destroys brains. And the VA is not caught up with that yet, caught up with that science yet. They also, yeah, absolutely. Know, they also don't know what to do for TBI. That's another reason why they may not be uh, diagnosing it as, as much as they, as they it could be and should be. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where if, if they admit and they now have to provide this uh, entire soft community with a rating to support that, how are they? <laughs> that's every single soft with the amount of training alone that a Green Beret, a Ranger Regiment uh, soldier, a Navy SEAL goes through for demolitions alone and mortars alone. Just the training. The training. Uh, I think it the the Na Naval Special Warfare has a data point that eighty six percent of of their warriors are have a TBI from training, just training before but, they ever go to a, a war zone deployment. And I think that's you know obviously I think that's the case across branches in the soft community. But here's another thing. Yep. Here's another part of part of the challenge is the soft community is a very unique, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to use the word special, special operations. <laughs> I want to use the word unique. Um, unique experiences, unique training, unique combat, unique, probably unique to begin with because of the selection, nature of the selection process. And there is almost zero cultural competence in the VA system for understanding and relating to the soft the experiences of soft operators. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, go ahead. And just dealing with doctors, as soon as someone has some type of relationship with a soft member and then they bring that up front, then, then it's automatic game on. Okay. I can talk to this person about everything, but it's yeah. almost like a gate yeah. for yeah. myself yeah. and my buddies as well to actually relate and open up about stuff to these doctors sure. if they don't have that comprehension. Right. Yep. Right. And they're just, I mean, 99.9% of the, the, the patients that use the VA are not soft. So clinicians, they don't get any reps with the soft community. They rarely, um, in the 15 years that I was at the VA as a, therapist in the PTSD clinic, I had many guys over the years tell me that they were special operations in Vietnam or something like that. Um, virtually none of them were. Uh, we published a study looking at where we did a Freedom of Information Act request, getting the DD-214 of 14s of 100 consecutive patients coming into the clinic, um, 
claiming to be Vietnam veterans with PTSD, essentially with PTSD. And seven or eight of them, maybe it was six or six or seven, I don't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere in that range, reported being special operations, and they weren't. They were just frankly uh, not telling the truth about the nature of their service. Um, and that was clear from their DD-214s. I will say I did treat, I did have one patient who was force recon, and um, I became, you know, I did a little, did a little of my homework to make sure that that, that was correct. And by the way, uh, it, so now, right about now, you might be asking yourself, well, well, Chris, how do you know all those other guys you, you've been talking to the last couple of years? How do you know any of them were, were actually soft? And the answer to that is I've, I've, I oftentimes will um, see their DD-214s. I'll read their the narratives for their their medal awards, and then it's and then it's word of mouth. So if I've done my due diligence on one person, and then the other people you send my way, it's you know that's that's how yeah. that's how it works. Yeah, I have to be quite honest. Eric and I were never in, in soft community. <laughs> we just sort of just fell in. We wore a uniform, got by. <laughs> well, and that's the crazy thing about to, when you think about it. It's it's very everybody wants to have that service, and you know, even if yeah, I was soft, I was a, I was a green beret in the ship, but then in reality, it's don't have any of the downside effects of it you, you don't have any of the the actual drama that comes with That's it some bullshit <laughs> <laughs> it's like we lost a lot of marriages and friendships to get where we're at now mister <laughs> yeah yeah you did i believe that that's that's real that's real no yes we did <laughs> But like what I what um what is really frustrating is the the slow roll of care, the 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 time it takes to adapt and fully embrace. We have this knowledge now, but treatment even on base on our military installations is still very, very slow. Yeah. We do we don't have the annual blood panels, blood work. We don't have that go-getting mentality of command that's willing to say, hey, now everybody has to get tested X, Y, and Z for blood levels. You have to get make, make sure your endocrine system's looking good. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of guys that are dealing with the absolute nightmare that is your low testosterone, yeah. but nobody wants to address that issue. Nobody, you know, you know, you just have some, some PTSD, PTSD. got to work through that. Well, yeah, I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how to explain why the VA is, is reluctant to treat low testosterone or any of the endocrine uh, hormonal dysfunctions that are common. Um, I'll give you an interesting, and this opened my eyes, an interesting, um, story there's a there was a surgeon there there is a surgeon at a at a at a large va hospital in the in the uh, mountain time zones who reached out to me about a year and a half ago after hearing me talking on a podcast and she said wow you know it was it 
I just learned so much. She's a surgeon. This woman is a surgeon. She does breast surgery, breast reduction surgery. And she's been doing a lot of it on rangers and other people with a lot of TBI. And, mm. yep. you know, that to, to have enlarged breasts as a man and especially as an alpha man, male, is, is a, you know, that's a, it's no fun. And, and it's, it's it, not. and it, it, it hurts. And nobody's under was understanding why they were having these problems. So she told me she was using, she was educating her patients about to explain why. And they, she said that like common response is they start crying because they're so grateful to know, to have an understanding and like, wow, okay. It's not just that I'm having some kind of bizarro, bizarro world reaction to something. It's like, this is happening to, to a lot of guys. Yeah, the low testosterone, vast ele- majority guys. elevated estrogen. Yeah. So, hey, hey, no. can I just go down the list of things that that yeah. I saw operators please do just, just to kind of give us yeah. a, you know, us and our listeners yeah. just a quick, you know, foundation to maybe yeah tune into this. So we talked about the traumatic brain injury, which I think it all starts there, frankly, um, and then from yeah. there you have endocrine dysfunction, um, sleep apnea. And of course, sleep disturbance is is inherent in in the nature of of your service. Um, chronic pain, orthopedic problems, headaches, addiction, very common. Depression, PTSD, anger, general anxiety, and 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 let's come back to the PTSD. Um, marital and family dysfunction, as you said, what's the divorce rate? It's about two hundred percent, I think, in the soft community. Yeah. And, yep. and the children are, the children are not unscathed either. Um, I think we need to say that the children of the, who were raised by parent, by, with a father or mother in the soft community come, they've got some unique experiences for in their childhood. So for example, think of a child who's gone to 10 funerals of uncles yep. who were killed in action. Think of a child who, whose father's never around. Uh, who comes home briefly for for brief periods, and but even then is kind of preoccupied with training and other things. Think of a child who's sitting in school, uh, listening to the other children talk about their parents, and that ch- that child can't really say what their father or mother does. Or they're sitting in school and they have the thought, "Huh, wonder if my dad was killed in action today. Wonder if he's still alive." I know he's over there somewhere. I don't know where he is. Don't know what he's doing, but I know it's dangerous. Uh, so there's a heaviness um, that, that the children of the soft community uh, experience. Then you get into problems with sexual health and intimacy, memory problems, concentration problems, you know, cognitive impairments that make it hard. By the way, make it hard to learn new things. That's one of the one of the things that nobody tells you about TBI. Yeah, you know, you have some pro- some cognitive problems, but nobody tells you that learning new things is going to be much harder. You still are going to be able to do your old skills, but but what is like the worst thing to happen when you're trying to transition out of the military, which is hard enough? Add a, throw a TBI in there, and and man, you're you've got a that's gobsmack. Then you've got the impairments in perceptual systems. Hearing, vision, balance, 
TBI means balance problems. And, you know, a lot of guys have dizziness and vertigo difficulties. Um, nobody ever, they, we, we rarely ever talk about or think about that. And then, of course, the transition difficulties and the ex- existential concerns. And I'm, I'm going to go on record and say, I hate the phrase moral injury. I hate it. And I know, <laughs> and I know, I know there are some people who find a lot of meaning in it. And, and so if you find meaning in the term, that's good. That's fine. I, you know, if it, if it resonates for you, by all means, use it. And there's no doubt that existential concerns include things like remor- survivor's remorse. You know, why did I survive when, when my brothers didn't? Um, guilt over that survival. Um, almost every guy I know, and probably you guys do too, uh, can relate an experience where you were supposed to be somewhere and you traded places with somebody else and that person died. Or you were going to go on this deployment, didn't, bad bad stuff happened. You were, you were supposed to be on that helo and you got pulled away at the last minute and the helo went down. Um, those kinds of stories are stories. Those experiences are really very common. So existential concerns are are there. No shit. No kidding. They're there. They include grief. They include loss of tribe. My problem with moral injury, if you don't mind me just kind of getting on my soapbox for a minute. Oh, please do. By all means. So moral injury, the phrase... Um, like so many things coming out of the VA, probably well-intentioned, but with an ideological perspective that, that war and the military are, to use, to use their ideological word, problematic. And the way, of, the way that the VA system and the researchers and their infinite wisdom handle that is to, is to identify the patients that they're trying to help as, quote, victims. So you're a victim of moral injury. It's not your fault. It's the government. It's the military. It's the system. I don't know. But you've been injured morally. Now, I don't, I don't know how you can be injured morally. Um, I kind of understand the concept. But it implies that what you were doing was wrong and was a sin. And I, I don't know many, I don't know too many people in the soft community that view their service as having been a sin against humanity, which is the implication to me in the term of, in the term, in the phrase moral injury. Mm-hmm. I was at a, I'll tell you, I was at a conference about four years ago and the guy who coined the term moral injury, Brett Litz, uh, psychologist at the Boston VA and Boston university was one of the speakers at a workshop uh, that was attended by a lot of Navy SEALs. This was the Navy SEAL Foundation Impact Forum. And about five minutes into the talk, and there were probably 500 people in this in this room. Uh, maybe maybe some of them were SEALs, but most of them were, um, it was the mental health community that was in attendance there. Um, I left the talk after about 10 minutes, and I went and sat out in the lobby area. And pretty quickly, it seemed like every other SEAL who had been in the talk <laughs> came out <laughs> into the lobby and they, and to a man, they were fuming. They were furious at what was being said and how it was being represented. Uh, and there were many spouses uh, that were, were joining them in that. So it was, 
something that I had been thinking of beforehand. But man, when I saw that reaction, uh, I kind of, I had to smile because it wasn't just me. That, that was <laughs> one of those times when I felt like I was being validated. <laughs> but like I said, if moral injury you know, resonates with you, then by all means, um, use it. PTSD. Should we yes. talk about that just a little bit? Oh yeah. I give you my, I'll give you my hot take on PTSD. Listen, I'm not a, I've been accused of, you know, I've been accused by some veterans in the system of, of being anti-PTSD or not believing in PTSD. And that's not the case. Um, but what I do think is, is I think PTSD was a political solution to a problem that needed a solution back in the 1970s. And so, so for those who don't know, PTSD was officially added to the psychiatric nomenclature in 1980. That's when it first became a thing, a diagnosis, an official diagnosis. And we needed something at that time to help understand how to help veterans and to help and to help um, people who had experienced other types of traumatic uh, experiences. And so, in the 70s, there was a group of VA scientists and, and clinicians kind of made common cause with a group of, of people who were concerned about sexual assault um, survivors uh, and their and their health. And, and there's no question that these are two groups needing things, needing recognition, needing advocacy, needing treatments. So they rushed through this diagnosis of PTSD without doing the proper research or due diligence, in my opinion. Um, this was very much a political diagnosis that was that was a it was an ad, it was a solution to an advocacy uh, need. Hmm. I view PTSD, and there, there's a variety of things you can read about that about that process. In fact, you could talk to Dan, Daniel Pearl about that, the pathologist. Now he 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 scoffs at the idea of PTSD. He says it's all brain injury. It's not it's not PTSD in, in veterans. Um, he scoffs at it, and, he, and he's yep. made a he's made a I think a, a very compelling case in an article he wrote about ten years ago. Um, I see, I mean, when you really look at what is PTSD in terms of the symptoms, it's, it's a, it's a, it's depression and anxiety. You score high on a depression scale, general depression scale and a general anxiety scale, you're automatically going to score high on a PTSD scale, which gives the VA the yeah. opportunity to say, oh, you've got PTSD. If you got, if you're depressed and anxious, that's PTSD then. Now, the diagnosis does include some, some specific things related to fear reactivity um you know the, the classic thing you hear is oh veterans are scared of fireworks because it reminds them of being at war <laughs> hell no <laughs> yeah they're fucking awesome man <laughs> yeah and so there there are these things that whether they're true or not um they've become part of our part of our understanding part of the social understanding of of PTSD. So you talk to a civilian and, and, you know, if you introduce yourself to a civilian and don't tell them much about who you are, but you're a veteran and they see your, your sleeve tats and they go, okay, the guy, and you say, oh yeah, this is where I serve. They're immediately going to think, oh, nightmares, flashbacks, uh, <laughs> dude's going to snap. John Rambo scenarios. Rambo scenarios. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you're just, yeah, you're, you're dangerous liability to be around and society has to be very careful of you, but you're a victim. So we're also sympathetic to you. Uh, that's yeah. kind of how that, that narrative goes. And that, that narrative of the broken down veteran, it's just, that's so wrong. 
it's so far it's so overplayed it's so overplayed it's, and, and it's, yeah. it's an injustice to our nation's veterans who have who who by all all accounts are incredibly successful meaningful important part of our society not just their military service yeah. but post military as well but it's been constantly fed to our guys as they get out and it's become this thing where it's if guys are already having a hard time forming identity letting go of the uniform letting go of the green beret letting go of the the tab they proudly earn and wear now society's telling them oh you're broken yeah you're yeah. fucked up yeah stay fucked up and broken stay, stay, and it's like stay, no stay fucked up and broken no. and here's a disability check exactly and guys won't fight it. Guys won't. Oh, I don't want to rock the boat. They gave me a whole bunch of rate. They gave me a really high rating for PTSD. But it's like, brother, your cognitive function, your memory loss, your your anxiety and depression, that's not your PTSD. Like, they're just banking on you not putting up a fight and walking away with that high PTSD rating. Yeah. And guys are like, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm fucked up. I have PTSD. It's like, no, dude. Like, On the one hand, you can't, you can't blame any, anybody, man or woman, who has some legitimate difficulties and takes advantage of the VA's um, safety net. Yeah. I can't, can't, that's, a, that's, that's rational. Um, yeah. But most of the people that are doing that don't have a full awareness or full understanding. And if your problems... If you're from the soft community, but this is true for many who aren't in the soft community, if your problems are bigger or different or more than simple PTSD, then you're not then you're not receiving the the diagnosis and the care that you need and deserve. Yeah. And that's and that's a disease. That, yeah, and that's we see it um all the time here. Um I specifically uh, I wanted to ask you about the uh the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA test, we we all have to go through this dog and pony show of taking this test to determine if we have TBI. And to me, that seems like a horrible metric of if you have TBI Say or not. Say more about the test. It's <laughs> Say more about the test. So what, yeah. what is it? Um, so the Montreal Cognitive Test is the only... The only assessment you get when you go see your your provider for your VA claims, it's supposed to be for within 72 hours of a TBI or a concussion at last, a mild concussion. But it's not, it doesn't take into account all of the soldier's history. It doesn't take into account the numerous incidents. Is that a pencil and paper test? Yeah. Yes, pencil yeah. and paper. So, and so there again, there's another just glaring example of the ignorance that, that we're dealing with here. Yep. I and mean, it's just massive ignorance. You don't have one event that you can put your finger on and go, yeah, this is where I fell off the, the you know, the rim of the grand Canyon and yeah. landed on my head. <laughs> and I have a TBI. It's, it's like yeah. 50, 50 things every day of your service. And yeah. they're cumulative. That's the other piece of it. It's like boxers that 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 develop cognitive and tbi problems over time every punch adds on you know they start to add up that first mortar round if you had retired after that one that first you know mortar 
round, you probably would be fine, but it's it's the next uh, 9,999 of them that added on to that, that adds up to, uh, to a massive uh, accumulation of blast wave exposures. And the other thing I wanted to ask you in regards to the allostatic load and the amount of stress that our guys and gals are, are taking on to stay on the job. Is there any way that we can put guidelines on the way we train, deploy, and then come back and actually de-stress, deload before we work up for another deployment? It, it's a consistent problem yeah. that I've seen in our yeah. community. Yeah. Of There's no downtime. Right. You are not down-regulating at any period. Yeah. And there's no importance. There's nobody, you don't, there isn't like this driver, like, all right, everybody, all team, you just got back from mission, come back. We're going to go into our four week decompression. It's always come back and you're back in the middle of a training right, cycle. Right. That op tempo is, 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 is a part of it. Um, you used yeah. the word, you used the phrase allostatic load. And if, if I can, let me just, let me just give a, an explanation of that so that. Yes, please. Uh, and I'm going to give you my explanation. Uh, I view allostatic load as a, a phrase that that's hypothetical. It's not referring to any specific thing. It's but it's the mm-hmm. hypothetical uh, total accumulation of burden of load on you, and that includes physical, that includes psychological, that includes um, you know everything. Um, and so, you know, my daily allostatic load. Uh, frankly, it's very low. I wake up in the morning, I pet my cats, I drink some coffee, I, I open my laptop. <laughs> Later in the day, I, I kind of do all that in reverse. Um, not not <laughs> a lot of allostatic load on me. Um, occasionally, uh, and it's been a while, but like I did the Murph challenge a couple of years ago. Um, Nice. And uh, I completed it, and that's that was like okay, I was I was thinking, okay, this was some good allostatic load for the day, um, <laughs> and, it, and it was allost- <laughs> it was allostatic load on my elbows for about a week um, before I could straighten my arms out completely. Uh, but you know, so for listeners, now imagine doing that every day, two or three of those every day, two or three Murph challenges every day. Uh, or what you know, whatever. That's that's the type of allostatic load we're talking about for 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 you guys for the soft community. Um, and you're right. When do you guys ever stand down? And that that is a problem. What does the NFL do? Think about the NFL. Very very um, you know very violent game in gen- You know, kind oh, yeah. of, uh, I think we could call it that. And the training. Uh, is is demanding and intense and and also involves hitting and, and head injuries. But even the NFL has a has a concussion protocol. Yes. Even the NFL is going to pull a star player out of a game. I mean, in theory, <laughs> in practice, maybe things are different. But in theory, you you get you get hit on the head. You get you take you get your bell rung, so to speak. And they're actually going to pull you out and do a little evaluation. And, and if you don't pass that eval, you're in concussion protocol for some set period of time until you clear it. Um, that would be an example of something that that could be done. But I would say rather than doing a, a concussion protocol per se, uh, 
it, there there could be a standardized set of things that that are implemented after a deployment or after certain training um, experiences. Um, yeah, that's exactly what we need. I think the only time I've ever seen that though is when somebody is so far gone and they get the opportunity to go to a polytrauma right. treatment center. That's, that's way um, downstream. That's when they're way down. When, that's when they're way. Yeah. You know, that's after the injury. <laughs> that's after the injuries yep. have, have piled up. And so, yeah, they're, yeah. they're, and, and I've, I've not served. So I want to be really, I want to be honest and careful here about, I have no implied criticism of, of, of any commanders or of DOD or any of the, of the decisions and procedures. I can't, I'm not in a position to do that, but I do believe that there are ways to help people uh, manage their allostatic burden, but also to manage their health. And I think there are lifestyle practices and there are assessments that can be done. So I think there's a lot that can be done and is starting to now happen. Uh, I know Jeff Dardia um, who, who task force stagger, but he's also, he runs a human performance and wellness program at, uh, at Fort Bragg. He's still active duty green beret, what he's doing and what, what, um, some of the, uh, integrative medicine, uh, holistic medicine, um, doctors and providers are doing there with hormones and diet and sleep and rest practices is really powerful. Um, it can go a long way, but we're just getting started with that stuff. Yeah, that's that's exciting. And it's I don't want to be a pessimist, but I I do feel eventually our community will figure it out. Uh it's just not gonna be anytime soon. It's the future of our guys. Uh and that's that's where we're gonna see the payoff in the future because right now it's it's I don't think there's anything being done to remedy or try to curve um, any of the issues in our, in our population. That's, you know, our guys are retiring right yeah. now. It's, it's, it's the care. It's going to have to be on the backside. Yeah. And that's where I really want to be able to point guys to like, what, what can they do? Who do they need to see uh, and get addressed first? Cause I think like, we all know like the care, the canary in the coal mine. And if for us, it's always sleep. I think mm-hmm. we're always real quick to address mm-hmm. like, oh, sleep's really crappy. And that's, that's at least where yeah. I started. Yep. And yep. I feel like as guys get out, like, it's like, Hey, understand it's, it's not just one thing. Right. Right. It's, it's a constellation, an entire set of different yeah. things. This is constellation of interrelated uh, problems. Well, you asked the, I mean, that is the $100,000 question. What do you do? Where do you get the care? And uh, let's, let's, let's tick off some of the known challenges and barriers. So one is ignorance of the individual operator and family. You know, how, how can you know what's going on unless you're listening to this podcast or reading, uh, reading what I or others have written. Um, And that, so that's, that's hard right there. Then you get, then you encounter the ignorance of the VA, the ignorance of, of DOD medicine, the ignorance of civilian medicine. Um, this is not something that's really understood by modern medicine at all, and in part because this is a this is this is new new ground. This is new territory for us. We've had 
we've been at war. Uh, the global war on terror now is in its 21st, 22nd year. And um, so we have, we have, we have men and women who have essentially been at war their entire adult lives. And many of them are now starting, you know, we're seeing a wave of soft retirements uh, that started a few years ago and will continue for a few years more. A wave, it's a tidal wave of, of, of people who are, who are either retiring or leaving the service uh, with, a, with a lot of medical problems that, that need special care. Um, so we've got an ignorant, we've got ignorant systems. We have uneducated clinicians who may be well-meaning, but don't know what to do. Um, what I tell people I talk to is get, take the paper, take the operator syndrome paper. It's public, it's public access. It's published in a medical journal. Um, you can find it online. You can print it. You can read it. You can print it off. Just Google operator syndrome that will come up. Probably three or four different foundations have it posted on their website. You can you can you can download it, you can print it, you can highlight the parts of it that resonate with you, and you can take that to your primary care doc. That's not a bad place to start. Ah, yes indeed. <laughs> That's exactly what I That's did. <laughs> good for you. And and from there you can you can you know in any healthcare system. Even, you know, whether it's civilian, military, VA, you can ask your primary care doc. You can say, hey, look at this. I'm one of the people that this is, that this is, that fits this, um, fits this, you know, fits into this framework called operator syndrome. And I'd like to ask for a sleep study to see if I have sleep apnea. I'd like to ask for a blood uh, test to look specifically to look at my hormones, which if you're thinking, well, I get a, I get a physical checkup every year or two. That's not part. That's not traditionally part of the routine checkups for men is to look at hormones. So you need to ask for that specifically. And then from there, you know, you can ask for behavioral health. You can ask for pain management. And there's so much we can do with pain management that doesn't include opiates. That's the other. That's another area in which I I would condemn modern medicine. Uh, we've we've done way too much with medications um, that that. That legitimately can be very helpful in the short term, but maybe aren't the best solutions for for you know the next for the oh, next yeah. thirty years of your life. Um, what else? Yeah, it, yeah. it's it's an epidemic that we've seen uh, hit close to home way too many times. Guys will are willing to do anything to stay in the fight, stay on a team, and if they get the wrong thing, die. Uh, issued prescribed to them it's it's not a pretty picture and it's not and you have to understand the pull and magnetism of this life and what it holds over the service member you don't want to give it up and if you're willing to crawl and endure any amount of pain to stay on a team and they offer you something that's addictive they're gonna take it and it, it's, it's i get it it's I sad. get it. I totally get it. I take it too. But there comes a point where you have to start to realize it's not the way, and there are other options out there. And by the way, we now this is this is another thing that that most Americans of all of all stripes don't know is that mental health care uh, in America is is largely a failed enterprise. Um, uh, Tom Insel, who ran the National Institute of Mental Health for 15 years, put everything 
he, he, he gambled the whole the whole house on on neuroscience and genetics being the solutions and and essentially got nowhere they have not moved the needle uh, a lot of clinicians uh, a lot of scientists made their careers uh, but the people who needed the help have have really uh, been let down and have not received it now that's the bad news the good news is we have more treatments now that many people have never even heard of like stellate ganglion block therapy like uh, we're big believers yeah, in that too, man. that that's uh, Game, game changer, absolute game, game changer. changer. I've we we are big advocates for it, but that's another one that's uh, vilified amongst uh, guys that don't really understand it. Oh, it's going to make you a, a zombie. No. no, it doesn't. No. It, it's it's one of the best things I was able to get. Um, but you have to be in the right mindset. You have to be willing to do work and be willing and accepting and. It seems like a crazy concept and scary, but it works. <laughs> well, it, it it brings. I mean, it's a it's a procedure that's been around for a hundred years in medicine, mm-hmm. and it's it's safe. It's a it's very effective at reducing certain types of pain and anxiety and PTSD symptoms. We just learned about the anxiety and PTSD benefits within the last decade or so, and the clinical trials have since been done. So it's not been used by psychiatry or psychology. Uh, but now it can be, except that almost very few psychologists have ever even heard of it. I think, you know, for your listeners, if, if you're seeing an individual therapist, ask them what they know about stellate ganglion block therapy. It just, I, you know, it's I'm kind of curious that it has, you know, there is this, what we, what's known as the practice, the research to practice gap, where the clinical community often takes five to 20 years before they start learning about the things that are, you know, the cutting edge. Uh, developments that that the science is doing. Stellate ganglion block therapy, there's almost no no reason not to get it. And you do have to understand, it's not the be-all, end-all, you know, miracle cure of everything, but it is profoundly beneficial. Even if it doesn't last, it can reset you back to how you felt, you know, at age 20 uh, and give you that baseline to be reminded of, oh, wow, okay, so this is what it feels like to stop banging my head against the wall. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a way it's a way to help engage in treatment um psychedelic medicine uh, i work with um the mission within vets um heroic hearts project there there's a whole lot of i'm not going to say psychedelics is the answer but i think we are now coming to believe as a field but also as a community that there is a a, a profound role for psychedelic plant medicine and we're still trying to understand that and do the research to, to kind of amplify and and help demonstrate the efficacy and the limitations of it. Uh, but yeah. that's another thing. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy. That's another treatment that many um, guys that I know will tell you was a game changer, a life changer for them. Um, but they're not going to get that at the VA. The VA is not providing that nope. right now. Um and you, no, there's a lot of great organizations that provide it, but it's not in the VA. And it's not in the VA. <laughs> um, now, the VA will probably, if, if they had a rep here talking with us, they'd probably say, well, that's because clinical trials have not yet demonstrated hyperbaric oxygen therapy to be effective. Uh, and there's, and that's kind of true. So, you know, there, there's even a reason for that. But, I mean, there's a reason for why they may not be providing it. 
I, I think we're at we're at a maybe an inflection point now where I think the world is starting to realize that social workers and psychologists, psychiatrists don't have all the answers and aren't necessarily the yeah. ones to to go to for help um, and aren't tuning into the things that people want. Um, Ken Falk wrote a really nice essay the other day. Uh, it was it was published. I can't remember where it was published, but he talks about uh, the Rand Corporation study where they went and they looked at the VA system and they they essentially reached the conclusion that the VA is providing providing outstanding and excellent care across the board, and it's wonderful. Uh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> five out of five they, stars. That's what they. Yeah, five stars. It's a Michelin. It's a Michelin uh, five star Michelin restaurant of mental health care. Yeah. Ken Falk pointed out they didn't Ugh. actually talk to any patients. <laughs> <laughs> so Rand apparently, I mean, and I didn't uh, read. The, why would I you didn't read the report? So you know, I should be careful what I say here. But uh, Ken Falk points out in his commentary that Rand makes this big sweeping conclusion about the wonderfulness of mental health care for veterans, but they didn't actually talk. Apparently, didn't talk to any veterans about the care that they're receiving. So. His point was that seems to imply that the, the health care, the mental health care is excellent for the institutions, not the patients. Yeah. Right. I mean, if I was going to do a research study on myself, ah, I wouldn't ask my like, customers. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Security Hall podcast is the best podcast. Yeah, fucking awesome. You just said it. Therefore, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Number one on Apple yeah. podcasts. <laughs> That's wild. Oh my god. Plus it's that is crazy. It's the most interesting and the funniest and the most engaging and yeah. has the has the you know the handsomest, you know, studliest uh yeah. host. That's that's a fact. And guests. <laughs> and guests. And guests. I look, and look, guests. guests. We gotta guests. The guests too. Don't go anywhere else. <laughs> Chris, I can't thank you enough for being here with us talking about this. Um again, the the work that you and your colleagues are doing is absolutely amazing yes. thank you for giving giving our our guys a voice because now more than ever people are starting to listen people are starting to understand it um from our end of it from our journeys we were on the same team dealing with the same things and it can feel so alone and crazy like you're the only person and then when you get something like this that says you're not crazy you're not making this up it changes everything yeah, it absolutely. and you're not alone it's more norm it's the norm yeah 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 and and that gave us even more uh strength to reach out and continue doing this bringing more information for our guys and girls who are are struggling with the same thing um Again, thank you. I can't. Uh, I can't tell you. We're not going to bother you for another uh, uh, sit please down do. whenever you do publish please your do. book. Yeah, please do. <laughs> please do for sure. This has been an honor. And I enjoy join talking with you guys, and I know you're reaching people, and that's that's phenomenal. So keep doing what you're doing, and thank you so much for having me today. And I'd love to come back another time. Awesome, we'll do, and uh, we will definitely bug you. Thank you, Sorry. sir. Until next time. 